0: Let's dive into uh, this overview of pre-millennialism. And uh, what we're going to put up on the screen is just kind of an overview, I think. Yep, there we go. Um, Overview of the kind of the timeline and... um, there won't be a test on this or anything, it's just for your, it's just for your help and edification. The um, president of the Master's Seminary is Dr. Abner Chow, and, and uh, Jesse and Caitlin were out in California this summer and happened to catch this lecture that he, uh, that he gave. Uh, providing an overview of the end times. And so they commended it to me and I listened to it and I do think he's done a great job. I commend it to you. Basically anything from Abner Chow that you get your hands on is really, really good. Um, So you can enter Abner Chow and then the title, This is the End into into a search engine. You'll find that lecture very profitable, encouraging. And then I just want you to know that I'm using his timeline slides uh, for this session. We are living on the left side of that slide. Um, so broadly speaking, if you can see up there, we're living in the last days and more narrowly, we're living uh, during the church age. So as you can see, the next event, so you see over there on the left side, church age, but the, but the big um, bracket there puts us in living in the last days. But in the church age, and you see the next event for us is the rapture of the church, which takes all church age saints, born again Christians up to heaven for seven years. The church age saints who've died in Christ, they will return with Christ. Um, And by the way, that rapture of the church in going into heaven for seven years, that rapture is a resurrection. That is a physical resurrection. So those church age saints who've died in Christ they'll return with Christ and anybody who's raptured with Christ they'll return with Christ and they'll be united with well I should say the church age saints who've died in Christ are going to return with Christ when he comes again in the clouds where we meet him in the air and the saints alive when Christ comes to rapture his church are going to meet Christ and his and the saints in the air this is this is the rapture this is what Paul calls a mystery it's a mystery because it's a hidden Resurrection, it's a resurrection that's not seen by the world. All the church saints are gonna receive their resurrection bodies and return to heaven with the Lord to be with him, worship him for seven years. Some people scoff at that and say, well, why is it hidden? Why Why can't anybody see that? And I just point back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the only people who saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians, believers. Believers saw the resurrection of Christ. Pharisees didn't see the chief priests, elders of the people, they didn't see it. Anybody who denied him, they did not see his first resurrection. So, it's not beyond you know, beyond the pale to say that church age saints when they're raptured to be with Christ, this mystery of the rapture that has been revealed to the specifically to the apostle Paul, it's a rapture, it's a resurrection not seen by the world. So while the church is in heaven with the Lord, watching Christ's heavenly inauguration, they're rewarded the bema seat. Uh, the people of the earth, while they're up there, the people of the earth, as you can see, are going to go through a great tribulation. It kicks off the era called the Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a technical term uh, for supernatural judgments, This day of the Lord, this particular one, comes in two parts, a divine judgment at the beginning and a divine judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand year reign of Christ. The millennial kingdom begins when Christ returns to rescue the nation of Israel from the Gentile nations, when they muster at the plain of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. Israel will have just repented of their national sin, that is the sin of rejecting their Messiah, They will have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. According to Zechariah, they will look upon him whom they pierced. They will mourn. They will repent and turn to Christ. The Christ will come to rescue them from the Gentile nations. He will defeat the nations that are led by the Antichrist. He will then come and establish his kingdom, which is a restored Davidic kingdom, visible, actual, here on earth. After winning... The battle of Armageddon, Christ will cast the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, who is Satan, but he'll cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, the dragon, Satan. He'll be bound for a thousand years. That's the duration of the entire millennial kingdom. He'll be unable to deceive or roam free. The millennial kingdom will be populated by several groups of people. This millennial kingdom, which as I said, is taking place on earth, Church age saints, that's us, we will return with Christ in resurrected bodies. So we'll be there. Believers who died as martyrs during the tribulation, they too will be raised from the dead and receive their resurrected bodies. Also, any believers who survived the tribulation in their natural bodies, those believers, whether they're Jews of regenerate Israel or any Gentiles of the nations, they too will enter into the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, I really can't overstate its significance. And I think that you hear that in any of these eschatological positions, you hear that it's a very significant matter, this issue of the kingdom of God. And we add the term millennial kingdom because we believe it's a thousand year, literal thousand year reign. But this is a significant, significant reality that fulfills so much of the Old Testament and New Fulfills God's promises. It's, it it brings in an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity on earth, because with Jesus Christ reigning on earth as He's exercising dominion over the earth, for once righteousness finally prevails and perfectly prevails. The earth will then be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and not only Israel as a nation, but other Gentile nations as well. All will honor the Son. Many by virtue of true conversion, others out of respect and honor and some by virtue of intimidation and some who will have to be intimidated into showing honor. But all will honor the son during that millennial kingdom. Otherwise they will be punished. But those who, are, who honor the son by virtue of true conversion, this is where I would share with the Post Mill that there is an unprecedented time of gospel prosperity, uh, winning over many, many people to... Christ and true salvation. At the end of the millennial kingdom, as you can see there, Satan will be released from his bondage. He'll be allowed to roam free. He'll go out, deceive the nations. Satan has no new ideas, so he will gather the nations once again. He'll repeat the earlier Gog-Magog Magog invasion. He'll muster his armies around Jerusalem. It didn't work very well the first time. He thinks, well, it be much better this time. The invasion fails because of bad weather. And so a sudden firestorm from heaven falls down and burns him up, incinerates him. And that ends the millennial kingdom right there. This ends the day of the Lord. It ends the last days, all that you can see coming to an end right there. Everything comes to a close at the great white throne judgment. There's a general resurrection at this time when all who are in the tombs will hear Christ's voice and come out and those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So all unbelievers will join the beast, the false prophet and Satan and all of his horde of demons in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So after that, when the earth has been cleansed of all unrepentant and unbelieving, when all sin has been properly judged, then the decreation that Peter describes in 2 Peter 3, that'll take place. When the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then there will be a new a recreation, a new creation, a new heaven, new earth that takes us on into the eternal state. That's just a broad overview that I wanted to give you here at the beginning on that slide of a premillennial position. And now I want to drill down a little further and read some of the primary, maybe some of the primary texts. And this is, this is frankly where I just had to, I, I had to rein myself in because on every section of that, I just wanted to dive in and just read to my heart's content and just, and share with you to my heart's content. But my heart will have to go without being content because there's just too much. I was telling Josh earlier that it, it is a, um, such an exhaustive, that right there ex- represents such an exhaustive, just such an exhaustive amount of information that it, it, you just cannot digest it. You can't get it in one setting. There, there is a ton there, but let's do our level best. All right. Let's go to the last days slide, Jesse. So the last days, the, the red will highlight where we are, what I'm talking about. So you don't get lost. So what we call the last days it's also known in Genesis 49.1 as the days to come. It's also known as the latter days, oftentimes in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4.30, Deuteronomy 31.29, Isaiah 2.2, 2, Jeremiah 23.20, Jeremiah 30.24, 48.47, 49.49, 49, Ezekiel 38.16, Daniel 2.28, and Daniel 10.14. Need me to repeat that or you guys got it? You can listen to it later or get my notes. So, all of those talk about the last days or the latter days, and these are the times that we're living in right now. Right now. I've read through every one of those passages, and if we were to gather all the evidence together, we can see that the last days refers to this overarching culmination of the climax, the fulfillment of God's plan and God's promises. So the last days, all this that stretches out there is everything coming, everything that's been discussed from Genesis 1 all the way through the Bible, all coming to a head, all coming to a climax, all coming to a pinnacle in those last days. And we're right at the beginning, right at the beginning of that. Exciting time to live. At the same time, as we're living in these last days, according, I read two passages this morning. I don't know if you remember, 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 3. And those two passages identify the last days as times of significant moral corruption. So we'll start by looking at 2 Timothy three, significant moral corruption. There's a flaunting of sin, there's a scoffing. It's as if the devil knows his time is short. And so he's stirring it up. 2 Timothy three, one, but understand this, that in the last days, there it is, that's the term. There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, like so much religion today, by the way, appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's the last days. Now flip over from there to the toward Revelation to 2 Peter chapter three. 2 Peter chapter three. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, there's this phrase, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, and then on and on it goes. You know know what uh, doctrine, secular doctrine, promotes that worldview right there? Darwinism, right? Darwinism promotes this very worldview. There's no change, everything's the same, it's uniformitarian geology, it's this closed system, nothing ever changes. So might as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. We die, we turn into worm food, we just disintegration of atoms and it forms up in another you know, intelligent mass of atoms and moves along. So what's the point? Nevertheless, even though we see that in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 3, and we can see so many other passages as well. Jesus warns of this in the last days so much. I mean, we saw that this morning, didn't we? In Luke, Luke chapter 17. But nevertheless, this time of the last days, which began at the church age, is such an exciting time. I mean, think about the culmination of everything that God has revealed from Genesis 1-1 up to Christ's first coming, think about all that's happened. And then, and then you know the event of Christ, the historical event of Christ, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and then his apostles teaching and interpreting the history for us to help us to understand. Think about what this means, what we're living in, what, how privileged we are. We have our sins forgiven. We're covered by the atoning work of Christ. We've been made partakers of a new covenant. We, even as Gentiles who've been outside of the covenants and the promises of Israel, we're brought into their covenant made to Israel as partakers of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and other passages as well. We've, we have the possession of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I mean, God, the triune God lives within us. We know the full story of the gospel. We, hold a completed canon of scripture in our hands, in our own language, no less. We get to enjoy life in the local church, serve the Lord and one another with gladness of heart, great joy, generosity. It's wonderful. We get to enjoy all these blessings. We get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We get to proclaim that all the time, nothing's stopping us. We get to pursue obedience to the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. We know the end of the story, just as we know in the beginning of the story. This is so exciting, so encouraging. It's astounding in the redounding of God's glory in that picture right there. What's more, we're only at the beginning of this. I mean, it's not an indefinite thing. We understand the times that are going to happen. Once the rapture happens, we will know what's going to happen next and next and next. But on this timeline, we notice where we are and we notice what's in front of us. The church age, followed by the rapture. That's what we look forward to. Followed by the second coming, followed by the millennial kingdom. And then afterward, getting into and enjoying the eternal state together. Listen, I hope you are getting this sense right now, but don't ever minimize the power of knowing what's happening now and what's happening next. It's so powerful to understand these things. These things are absolutely essential to a Christian worldview to give the power of perspective. This is, this is our worldview. This is how we think. This is, this is what gives us hope. This drives us. This gives us great joy. Some people will say, well, the premillennial position is so pessimistic. It's just got doom and gloom for the future. And I say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yes, there's doom and gloom. If you are an unbeliever, I mean, if, that's bad news for you. So believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel and join us in this joy. Join us in this joy. Man, there is... There is such joy in the way we think. Understandably, in in culture and society, it's gonna get it's gonna get worse. But listen, there is great, great joy. I mean, the, the the gospel that could make Paul sing, Paul and Silas sing while in a dank Roman prison. The the, the gospel that made him offer his head willingly to be Separated from his body so that he could be with the Lord. Listen, we have got the most joyful good news. Knowing the beginning of the story in Genesis, knowing how sin entered the world and what it did to the world, knowing what God has done to reconcile the world to himself in Christ, we've majored on all those excellent elements of our Christian worldview. We've rejoiced that we share them in common with other professing Christians. And when it comes to how the story ends, we seem to have less clarity. And for some, there's even less interest. And I don't understand that. That ought, to, that ought not to be when our Lord, as I said earlier, our Lord revealed it. So we should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. We should remember the commandment of the Lord, our Savior, Lord and Savior through our apostles, right? We should go to this especially exciting is the next event for us. While we're living now in the church age, the next event, you can go to the next slide, which is the rapture. The rapture, and it says the rapture in Bema. The rapture is what Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-one as a mystery, as a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And by mystery, Paul does not mean something mysterious. He doesn't mean something esoteric, hidden, um, well, it is hidden. It's something that was was hidden. A mystery is something that was hidden and unknown to previous generations, and particularly in the Old Testament. But that's been made known through New Testament revelation by the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. Number of mysteries in the New Testament. There's a. And one of the mysteries is in Romans eleven twenty-five 25, that there's a partial hardening that's come upon the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's a mystery. That wasn't known previously in the Old Testament. It's been made known through Paul. The um, revelation of the incarnation, that is son of God, son of man, full you know, humanity and deity joined together in one person. That was not known and understood. That's a mystery, Uh, According to Romans 16, 25, Ephesians 1, 9 and and 10, there's a mystery, the revelation of the incarnation, the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the plan to unite all things together in him, all that's been a mystery and revealed now. The revelation of the church itself, by the way, notice that in these other systems, that they believe that the, they they go back and say that the church was in the Old Testament. So they use the term church to refer to the, the congregations of the Jews. And they do that because the word ekklesia, the Greek word for, we translate church, which just means assembly, uh, they can find that in the Septuagint applied to Old Testament or or Jewish congregations. But that same term is also applied to other assemblies, pagan assemblies, assemblies in the marketplace, riots. Ekklesia is a term that means assembly, but it takes on special significance and a clearer um, revealing of meaning in the New Testament. The The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It's something new, a mystery revealed for the church age. So the church started at Acts chapter two and it goes up in the rapture and that's the church age that's got a start and a finish to it. So the revelation of the church itself which is about uniting all people together in one body in Christ, Ephesians 3: three to five, that's called a mystery. To make known the manifold wisdom of God in this newly revealed entity called the church, which is Ephesians 3: nine to 10, that's called a mystery. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter two, the entirety of the New Testament revelation, that's called a mystery revealed. What was not, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, that God revealed to us by the Spirit, Paul says. "I'll Stop there, but you, I could go on, but you get the idea. The rapture is another one of these mysteries. It's something hidden in previous revelation, now made known to Paul, made known through his ministry. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's a great verse, by the way, to hang above the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And then it goes on. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. There's another text. Turn to this one. This is 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following. Paul says this. who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's the word that's translated rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Whatever your eschatological perspective may be, ask yourself, does my eschatological system enable me and encourage me to obey that final verse? Therefore, encourage one another with the words that were written there. If you're not able to answer yes, an immediate yes, you may want to go back and check your math and go see if you've got the right understanding of this because that perspective needs to shape the way you speak to your fellow Christians. We need to, as Ephesians 4 says, we need to be speaking the truth to one another. The verb is actually aletheo. It's to it's to truth with one another. So be truthing with one another. That is, don't, don't speak as if like what you see on TV or football games or whatever it, that, like that's all important. Speak as if this is important. Speak as if scripture is important. That's what we are. We are believers of the word. Let's speak that way. Truth with one another. Speak the truth. Live the truth with one another. And this right here, this perspective from 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18, this should shape the way we speak, how we encourage one another and and, and strengthen and edify one another. There are some who say that this right here is actually describing not the rapture of the church, but actually the second coming of Christ. They say, we got this all wrong, okay? John MacArthur, I think, provides a very helpful note on that text for those who would like to equate this event with what happens at the second coming. It's written right in the text note of your, if you have a MacArthur study Bible, you can find it there. But this is what he writes. Similarities between this passage in 1 Thessalonians and the gospel accounts The similarities include a trumpet, Matthew 24, 31, a resurrection, John 1, 26, and a gathering of the elect, Matthew 24, 31. Yet dissimilarities between it and the canonical sayings of Christ far outweigh the resemblances. So here are the differences. Some differences between Matthew 24, 30 and 31 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17 are as follows. Number one, in Matthew, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. In 1 Thessalonians, ascending believers are in them. In the former, the angels gather. In the latter, Christ does personally. In the former, nothing is said about resurrection while in the latter, this is the main theme. And number four, Matthew records nothing about the order of ascent which is the principal lesson in Thessalonians." End quote. It's clearly talking about two separate things. There there are similarities, but there are great differences too. So don't just, we learn this all the time in, in exercising discernment, don't we? Don't just pay attention to the similarities. Don't just look at correlation, look at differences. Look at what makes something distinct from another. And you can certainly see a distinction between this event, this rapture event, and the second coming. You go back to 1 Thessalonians here, you'll see that Paul moves from the mystery of the rapture in chapter four, right into the doctrine of the day of the Lord, which he had already taught them, but he says this, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning, which is a a literary signal that he's going into another topic. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Very similar to Luke 17, right? But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all children of light, children of the day, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, how is it that they are gonna live with him here at the end when he's promising the day of the Lord is gonna come? Oh, because of chapter four. They'll already be taken up to be with the Lord and this event will pass them by. You see, the, you see that on the line there. In the book of Revelation, we notice there's the word church Ekklesia, and it's used 20 times in the book of Revelation. In 19 of those 20 uses of the word church, Ekklesia, 19 of the 20 uses are in chapters one through three. The letters of the risen Jesus Christ to the seven churches have the most of them. There's three in chapter one, the rest of them, 16 are in chapters two to three. And then there's a huge leap in the usage of the word Ekklesia from ending in chapter three, From chapter four, nothing, to five, six, all the way up to Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. That's the only one of the 20 outside of Revelation one through three. Jesus says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's rather curious, isn't it? But it's clear when you understand that the church from Revelation four through 19, really, is there, is in heaven with Christ during much of this time. What are they doing there? What are we doing up in heaven? Strumming on a harp, floating around, walking the streets of gold or whatever that, no. We understand from Second Corinthians 5.10, the church is going to stand before Christ. Each one of us individually stand before Christ at the bama seat. The bama seat judgment, it's called a judgment. It's really a victor's circle. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we're going to stand before him there so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or bad, or good or worthless. So Paul speaks of this Bema seat judgment as the judgment seat of Christ, but the term is Bema. He speaks of this in other terms too. He calls it the day of Christ, Josh has been preaching through Philippians and in Philippians 1, 6, 1, 10, and 2, 1.6, 1.10 and 2.16, he calls this the day of Christ. Day of the Lord, now that's judgment. Day of Christ, this is for us as believers to stand before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ. Believe, it's, just to make this clear, it's not a judgment for sins. Our sins were already judged by the once for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is a time, the Bema seat, is a time when Christ judges our works when he determines our rewards, when he hands out our crowns. And those crowns are like the laurel wreath of an Olympic victor. This is a victory celebration. And it makes such a difference when we realize that, doesn't it? That we know that our life matters now. What I do day in, day out matters. The decisions I make, the things I think about, the things I give myself to or don't give myself to, if I'm gonna stand before Christ, man, I, I don't want any shame at that time. Even though all my sins are forgiven, I don't want anything to cause me to shrink back. I, anything that he's, and anything I get rewarded for, by the way, who did it? <laughs> he did. Anything, any good coming out of me, it's all him. Any bad coming out of me, that's eh, all me. <laughs> you see, the, see how that works? But it's no wonder the 24 elders in Revelation 4.10 that they fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And what does it say there? They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed, were created. Very good case can be made that the 24 elders of Revelation 4 and chapter 4, chapter 5 represent the raptured church there praising God, which would mean that we are going to have up in heaven a front row seat for the inauguration of the Lamb. Look at Revelation. Just go to this real quick. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse, we'll just dive in there at verse Well, chapter five, verse one, then I saw this, and again, that formula, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Can you believe that? Of all creation, even the angels in heaven, no one is authorized to open that scroll except one, Christ. He is the perfect last Adam. He is the perfect mediator of God's kingdom. He's the only one. Verse six, between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth." Beautiful, isn't it? We're going to be there. We're going to see that that scene right there after the time of the great tribulation has ended, just prior to the second coming. Says in chapter nineteen, verse seven of Revelation that the uh, 24 elders fall down again in worship. They join the chorus and they say, "This let us rejoice and, and and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride." What's that? The church. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Saints, again, reference to the church. Shortly after this, the church returns with Jesus Christ, following him as he judges the nations in Revelation 19 and then joining him in the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. Now there's so much more I'd love to, ponder and say, but we need other texts to turn to. Let's keep moving. Jesse, can you move to the next, the tribulation slide? Yeah. So while the church is in heaven, while we're enjoying everything we're enjoying up there, enjoying a new body, by the way, resurrected body, the eschatological day of the Lord judgments begin. You can see that. Arrow or the bracket there lining up right there where we are raptured, and here on earth, those judgments begin. Remember what I said this morning how God removed Noah and removed Lot, and Christ does the same thing for his church. He removes us from what's about to happen, what's about to befall the earth. For 1 Thessalonians 5 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we, whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. So God tucks his people away in safety and he returns to the plan for the nation of Israel. To judge this, what is currently and will be there at the beginning is a rebellious nation. To bring this nation of Israel, to bring about the persecution of the nation. Why? So that they will be restored because they are provoked to repentance. It's only a repentant believing Israel that God is able to bless. So this seven-year period of tribulation is called the Great Tribulation. It's the one week of Daniel 9.27. When it says a week there, he's referring to a week of years. Uh, that's a way of, you know, kind of dividing things up. The week there is, as you can see, is divided up into th- two 3.5-year uh, sections, two periods. Uh, you can see that written in Daniel as time and times and half a time. So that adds up to 3.5. So the first half of the week of the Great Tribulation is kind of a time of great judgment, but a lot lot of it is a time of warning. Uh, It's intended to awaken Israel to its danger, to its need to repent and embrace Christ, according to Daniel 12, verse 7. The second half of the week becomes a judgment upon the nations, upon the world, and it ramps up in increasing severity and increasing levels of destruction. A third of the earth is going to be burned up. A third of the waters of the sea are going to be poisoned and not able to be. A third of the lights from the heaven and the the cosmic lights and everything are going to be turned off. So there's going to be darkness, food, and all that is scarce. It's going to be a time of great difficulty. John sees what this time is going to be like in Revelation 6 through 10, as Jesus opens the seven seals. You know, you understand it's got a scroll and there's a wax seal that's sealed on the edge of the scroll. And so that scroll imprinted with a signet ring generally is dries there. And every time a seal uh, seven seals on a single scroll and every time a seal breaks, another judgment happens. So that's the idea. What this shows in Revelation 6 through 10, as Jesus opens seven seals, one after another, is that Jesus is in charge of these judgments. We need to see that he's sovereign over what's happening. It's not out of control. And the very first seal that he cracks and opens is sending the Antichrist. The Antichrist appears as a rider on a white horse with a bow and a crown, symbols of power and authority. He's a false messiah. He promises political peace to Israel, but it's a false peace. We see, I mean, we see that all the time right now. I mean, going on all the time in the state of Israel. Let's do the two, the two state solution. And every, every, every president has tried to figure out the Middle East. Why? Because the Middle East is so strategically important on the map. It really is. So it's, look, is it, some people say, well, look what's happening in Israel. Well, look what's happening. It's, it's any time. And listen, I believe in the imminency of the rapture. I believe that that's coming. I kind of think it's coming soon. Could I be wrong about that? Absolutely, I could be wrong. I mean, what we have is a state or a nation of Israel right now in the land. Is that the regathering that's talked about in Ezekiel 37? Maybe, maybe not though. I mean, the whole thing could unravel. The Arabs could push Israel into the sea and our eschatology is not gonna be affected one iota, why? Because we don't know how everything lines up. Have I not been saying that for the past number of weeks? Don't set dates. Don't read headlines because we don't know. We really got to stick with that. You really got to be careful about perpetuating these ideas that, oh, it's all lining up. Now look at it. Look at it. It's all lining up. Don't do that to yourself or anybody else. Don't lead people astray. So the rider comes on a white horse, a false messiah. He's a political ruler. This is the Antichrist. And when he breaks these other seals, there are other horses and riders. The red horse symbolizes war, black horse symbolizes famine, pale horse, plague. And remember, again, Jesus is in sovereign control of all these crises. And even though he is in control in heaven, breaking seals on earth, the Antichrist is gonna take full advantage of every single one of these crises to consolidate power, to consolidate control and unite the entire world under his authority. Jesus breaks a, th- a fifth seal, giving assurance to. And it's interesting: is judgment, judgment, judgment. All of a sudden, he breaks a fifth seal, and it's the martyrs of the tribulation saying, "How long, O Lord? How long?" They've been killed because of the the name. And Jesus, uh, it's, or it's Jesus reveals Revelation six eleven, they were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Interesting, that's a fifth seal, to stop in the middle of all this and assure these martyrs, hold on just a little bit longer. Such a picture of tenderness in the turmoil, isn't it? So like our Lord asleep in the back of the boat on the Sea of Galilee while all the disciples, fishermen, all their lives are losing their minds over the storm. And Jesus is calm. And then he brings them into his peace. That's what he's doing here. The sovereign serenity of our Lord. He breaks a sixth seal, Revelation 6, 12 to 17, results in an earthquake, massive cosmic signs. Those signs are found in Matthew 24, 29, Luke 21, 25 as well. They fulfill Old Testament prophecy like Joel 2:30 30 to 31, Zechariah 14, 6 and 7. According to Matthew 24, 4-14, to 14, as Jesus breaks seal after seal, it unleashes a time of false messiahs, wars and rumors of wars, religious apostasy, moral lawlessness. And yet, verse 14, Matthew 24, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world <laughs> as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. It's a testimony. The gospel being preached during the tribulation is a testimony to the nations. Even though we know, based on all the other scriptures we've been talking about, that many, most will not believe. It's still a testimony to them. Keep that in mind as you do evangelism. You are, if you're faithful with the gospel, you're being a testimony to them. You're pleasing the Lord. You can rejoice in the gospel that you preach, even though they don't believe. It's not about the results. It's about being faithful. Same thing here. Clear, universal proclamation of the gospel, but it's not believed, it's not embraced. In fact, the attitude of the people undergoing judgment is there in, if you're in Revelation 6, look at verses 15 and following, Now back up. (laughs) You open the sixth seal. I look behold, a great earthquake. Some became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Okay, so the gospel has been preached to all the nations. Man, that's, that's theology they understand, isn't it? They understand theology, but you know what? It's not driving them to repentance. They shake their fist to the heavens. Well, seven seals lead to seven trumpet blasts again, um, unleashing cataclysmic judgments Revelation 8 through 11. In Revelation 12, I'm just hurrying here, there's a symbolic interlude, um, first of seven great signs in the last half of the book of Revelation. This one in Revelation 12, portraying God's covenant relationship with Israel, his protection over Israel. There's a great dragon revealed there to be Satan, the ancient foe of God's people. He's the power behind the beast of the sea, who is the Antichrist, and the beast of the earth, uh, the false prophet, both of whom are revealed and clarified in Revelation 13. After this, seven bowls of wrath are poured out, causing more destruction, culminating in the judgment of the harlot of Babylon. Revelation 15 to 18, this this harlot of Babylon, this world economic system that causes people to drop all moral conviction in order to facilitate worldwide trade, make money at all costs no conviction, no religion. They'll, they'll go with the flow, whatever gets them there. They will prostitute themselves to any idol, any idolatry, and God will destroy the entire idolatrous, promiscuous system as prophesied in Isaiah 13 and 14, Isaiah 21, Jeremiah 50, Zechariah 5. A ton we had to skip over there, but that's what We'd mean by an overview, I guess. So, all right. So I want to go to the second coming slide, but I'm just looking at the time and let's maybe take a five, 10 minute break. How about that? Ready? No, you don't want to break? Keep going? Yeah. <laughs> I love you guys. This is this is like the elect of the elect right here, man. Right on. All right. So Perusia, Perusia is going to the next one. Christ's return. Now, there we go. All right, so the parousia, which is the second coming of Christ, Christ's return. We're going to approach this from a number of angles, but I'd like you to maybe, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see this, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, find your way to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, obviously, is the resurrection chapter. It's, a, I mean, in a church that was plagued with so many issues in the Corinthian church, we come to this kind of culminating issue that they were denying not not resurrection itself, by the way. They, they were fine with a spiritual resurrection. They denied bodily resurrection. They, they didn't understand in, in, the Greek, in the Greek way of thinking, um, Greek philosophy, they didn't understand why would anybody wanna come back to life in a body? I mean, a body after all is material and material is evil and spirit is good. So forget resurrection in, a, in any kind of physical sense. They thought that was absolutely ludicrous. And there were people, teaching this in the Corinthian church. Even though Christ himself rose from the dead physically, bodily, walked around, was seen, and appeared to all his apostles and to 500 people at once and all the even though that's true, they were undercutting the entire doctrine by saying physical, bodily resurrection, nah, spiritual resurrection. So, I love this text in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, because of this immense sweep of time of redemptive history that it covers from the beginning of the church age that started right after the resurrection of Christ. It goes all the way to the end of the eternal state. So this is a massive, massive text. Let me just read and get it before us. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and destroying, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul goes through a series of events here. I can't get into all the details, such rich detail here, but I can't get into all of it. The first event though he describes is the resurrection of Christ. First fruits of the harvest. Just like we can imagine the first fruits offering, you take the first, whatever you harvest from that field, you take that, take it to the temple, offered as a grain offering to the Lord as a thanksgiving offering, rejoicing, worshiping. You come back, harvest the rest of the field, that's yours, but you've given. So that first fruits offering is a promise of the rest of the harvest to come. Same thing here, same thing here. Physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. His was a bodily resurrection. All who follow him alike in resurrection will be raised bodily just as he was. Paul summarizes second event, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We've already seen the mystery of the rapture, which Paul refers to in verses 50 and, 50 and 51 of the same chapter. And we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. The rapture is the bodily resurrection of the church age saints. Keep in mind their resurrection is not seen or known at this time though not known by the world. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, when the church returns with Christ, this is when they're going to be revealed for the first time to the rest of the watching world in their resurrected bodies. Tribulation martyrs, they too will be real, revealed in their resurrected bodies. We read that, about that in our first session in Revelation 19, 11 and following. In Revelation 20, we, saw, we see that uh, when Christ returns, we know that he's going to come back and... In the second coming, he's going to meet the Antichrist on the field of battle, so to speak. The Antichrist gathers the armies back in Revelation 16, 16. He's gathering them there. He musters them finally in Revelation 19, 16. They're the Gog, Magog armies of Ezekiel 38 to 39. We can also see this referred to in Joel 3, 1 to 17. We can also see it in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. So Jesus will return to confront this this antichrist, this beast-led, false prophet-supported rebellion that comes at the end of the the tribulation age. And when he returns, he's going to kill them all. He'll establish his earthly reign, the millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. As Revelation 24 to 6 says, resurrected saints who return with Christ will reign for, with him for 1,000 years. That is a literal bodily resurrection, just like Christ's resurrection. And then 1 Corinthians 15:24 says, then comes the end. Ta The end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And this, go to the kingdom side here, Jesse. The Yep, the kingdom side. So third event in Paul's summarization here. I said earlier, the millennial kingdom begins when Christ returns to rescue the nation of Israel from the Gentile nations. As the second coming happens before the millennium begins. It's what makes us pre-millennialists. They muster at the plain of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. Israel will have repented for rejecting the Messiah. They They will have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. So when Christ comes, he comes to defeat the nations led by the Antichrist, establish this kingdom, the restored Davidic kingdom here on the earth. And after winning that battle of Armageddon, Christ will cast the beast, the false prophet into the lake of fire and, and Satan, the dragon, he'll be bound for a thousand years, bound, un, un, unable to deceive, unable to roam free for the duration of this millennial kingdom. Then comes the end, Paul says, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father. The period of Christ's millennial Millennial physical earthly reign is an intermediate kingdom of the coming age, which is, which is a prelude into the eternal state. The rest of 1 Corinthians 15, 24 20 to 28 expands on and elaborates on those two little words, the end. What Paul calls the end, ta telos, is going to culminate in Christ delivering the kingdom over, of God over to his father. But before he's ready to do that, Christ has some work to do in the administration of this millennial kingdom here on earth. First, it says in verses 24, 25, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is gonna subdue every power, every opponent, every rebel force that's opposed to his rule will be subdued. And then, he, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power, for he must reign, it says, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So, Christ reigns on earth, he crushes all opposition, and after that, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And after that comes the end, the resurrection of the wicked and their appointment with God on Judgment Day. That word abolish in 1 Corinthians 15, katargeo, means to render ineffective, It means to cause to be useless. It means, even stronger, can be used to mean wipe out, abolish, or bring to an end. But that's what Christ is gonna do during the millennial kingdom over unbelievers who are alive during that millennial kingdom. He will subdue them, render them ineffective, press them into submission. Any rebellious impulses will be dealt with more severely with swift, ruthless action. The word rule is archaic. Command of a superior over an inferior. Authority is exousia. It emphasizes legal authority over someone. The word power, dunamis, refers to the ability to project his authority, to exercise a dominating influence, exercise rule. All those terms are often used of hostile spiritual forces like demons in rebellion against God, but also to every human rule, every human authority and power, every nation, government, king. Kingdom, anybody who governs and rules through them, all those words can be used to them as well. So Christ is going to begin this subduing, abolishing, destroying work first when he returns to go to war against the armies of the beast. Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, and he slays him with a sword that comes from his mouth. Satan seized, he's bound for a thousand years in order that he may not deceive the nations any longer. Rome free. And during that thousand years, Christ is going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to rule with a rod of iron over the nations of the earth. He's going to bring in, because of that, in an age of unparalleled peace and prosperity in fulfillment of the prophecies made by Solomon, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah. I'm going to recommend a book to you, by the way, that... Um, has really helped me in thinking some of these things through. This is um, by Matt He He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary. He's teaching down at uh, Expositor Seminary in Florida, but this is called Amillennialism and the Age to Come, subtitled, A Premillennial Critique of the Two-Aged Model. So much helpful in this book. So much helpful. If you're interested in going further, digging deeper, I totally recommend that. But just a few comments. In Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon says the Messiah is going to reign over the entire earth. He's going to glorify God during that time by dispensing justice, by showing compassion. He's going to be bringing a, an unparalleled prosperity to the earth, Psalm 72. In Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, it says there will be a long, long life. Fruitful, bountiful harvest, blessing upon the womb, and abundance of peace, even among the animals, Wolf lie down with the lamb, they'll graze together. Line eat straw like an ox. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. With righteousness, the Messiah is going to judge the poor. He's going to decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He'll kill the wicked. Isaiah 2, 2 to 4. Micah 4, 1 to 3. Those teach that all nations and all peoples are gonna come to the house of God to learn his ways in order to walk in obedience. Lord's gonna judge between the nations. He's gonna settle dispute among the people. All nations, by the way, have to appear once a year before him in Israel to bring tribute and worship. If they don't come, he withholds rain or he sends plague as a punishment. Interesting, isn't it? Zechariah 8, 4 and 5, there's gonna be peace in Jerusalem, with old men and women relaxing and in the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Any city in America you want to send your kids play in the streets? Old women, old women relaxing. Right now I'm seeing a mugged in New York City. Zechariah 14, 16 and 19, the nations will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, celebrating the Feast of Booths. Anyone who rebels, anyone who refuses to come, the Lord's gonna punish them by, as I said, withholding rain. This is why Psalm 2, God tells the kings of the earth, be wise, be wise. Bow down, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you die. Nations, they may rage now, Kings may conspire against him now. It's kind of comical. God laughs at their petty rebellions because the king he set in Zion, his holy hill, the king he set on top of that millennial kingdom, he's going to break them with a rod of iron. He's going to dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. They are no match for his power. So, what makes this earthly millennial kingdom reign of Christ necessary? Because God promised it. God promised it. He must reign must until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110, verse one, the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Followed by this promise, verse two, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Enemies have always surrounded Israel, haven't they? Always threatened, but then the tables are gonna be turned. Not just hostile powers, by the way, go to the judgment slide here, Jess. Not just hostile earthly powers are gonna be subdued, but hostile heavenly powers are gonna come under judgment too. Satan is released here at the end, as Revelation 20 says in verse 20, verse seven and following. He's released to deceive the nations again. He can roam free again. He can gather them for one final battle against Christ. All unbelievers are going to join the beast, the false prophet, Satan in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then comes the end. Now, I, I think that I covered this, but I can't remember in all that I've said, if I explained where are these unbelievers or anybody who has to be ruled with a rod of iron, where they come from. There will be believers coming out of the great tribulation Believers from the nations will enter into, they'll, they'll become believers in the great tribulation, whether it's Israel coming in their natural state or believers uh, or Gentiles coming in their natural state, they'll enter into the millennium in their natural condition. Because of the great prosperity and the rule of Christ to the Messiah, ruling righteously, there will be extremely long lifetimes. Anybody who dies at a hundred will be thought dying as a child. What a tragic, you know, you know infant death basically. So there's going to be extended life uh, life expectancies. Abner Chow says in his presentation that why a thousand years? Because God wants to show that righteousness will extend life a thousand years long. What's the longest living person we can remember who lived in a state of sin? Methuselah, nine sixty nine. This exceeds that by thirty one years, by a generation. Nonetheless, whether that's the reason or not, but uh, it's a good insight, I think. But un, un, you know, these, these believers who enter into the millennial kingdom, they're going to have babies. They're going to have families. And these babies are going to be born into the family as sinners. They're going a, a, to be unregenerate like all of our children are. They're going to grow up in the family and they are going to either repent and become believers in the Messiah or they're not. So the world with massive population, remember I said this morning about in Noah's time, Low estimate from Answers in Genesis, they said low estimate, 750 million people on the earth when the time of the Noah's flood came. At a, at a greater estimate, probably more realistic, they said, because of the long lifespans, 4 billion people on the earth. That's during Noah's time. Think about unparalleled prosperity, childbirth, productivity, long lifespans, families building, growing, populating the earth rapidly. There's not going to be any population concerns and worries and food shortages and any of that, because Christ is gonna bring prosperity to the earth. Vindication, full vindication of his righteousness, of what righteousness looks like when it's applied to this, even this fallen world, he's gonna be fully vindicated. Those children who grow up and become adults, who live under the reign of Christ, but they gotta be forced to bow the knee. They've got to be persuaded. They're not worshiping because they love him or want to honor him. They are being forced to honor him. What's going to happen to them when the beast or when when Satan is released? They're going to be gathered together for one more rebellion, one more time. That's how that happens. Then comes the end. Final stage in the resurrection order, Paul started in verse 23. Christ rises from the dead. All believers rise from the dead. Third, all unbelievers are gonna rise from the dead. It's described in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. When the sea gives up, it's dead. Death and Hades give up, their dead. All unbelieving souls, they're gonna be judged. at The great white throne judgment. They'll be sentenced. Sentence will be immediately executed. They'll enter into the lake of fire. And finally, at that point, Christ will put an end to death itself. The death that he abolished when he triumphed over it at the cross The last enemy, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Why is death the last enemy to be destroyed? Because death has to remain as the wages of sin. So he uses it as a tool for the sake of executing divine justice in faithfulness to Genesis 2.17. As long as sin remains, death must remain once that sin is gone and all unbelievers and all sinners are gone, once that tool of judgment serves no more purpose, he'll retire it. He'll throw it away forever. Why is Paul bothered to give us this order of the resurrections, the order of this age, the age to come? Why did Christ want to reveal any of this to us? Share the news of his triumph, of his messianic kingdom? Here's a some attempt to answer the question triumph of christ over all earthly powers over all cosmic powers over all spiritual powers reveals god's faithfulness reveals god's faithfulness god keeps his promise literally his warnings of judgment and his promises of restoration promises to his people promises to his son God keeps those promises literally. If there was an exile, a literal exile of a literal people going to a literal place called Babylon or a literal place called Assyria, the Israelite northern kingdom before that. If those things came true literally, physically, visibly here on earth, why wouldn't the rest of them come true? This vindicates his faithfulness. God's justice is vindicated. God is just, isn't he? to judge the unbelieving nations of the earth on the earth. We are going to see, all the world will see, the nations get their due. We'll see there is not one sin that is gonna escape his notice. Not one wrong that won't be righted. Not one just injustice that will not be made right. God will deal with all injustice because he's just. He's just. And we rejoice in that even though we, we shudder to see some of the judgments that befall the world. We also get to see in the revelation of all this, we all get to see God's wisdom. We get to see God's rule over the nations of the earth, on the earth, by his son. We're gonna see the wisdom of Christ being, they came from the ends of the earth to come see Solomon and someone greater than Solomon is here. It's gonna be a joy for the nations of the earth to come to Israel, to make that pilgrimage every year to the Feast of Booths and go see him we're going to see the righteousness of Christ, the wisdom of Christ in action on earth. We're going to see <laughs> for the first time, you won't mind going to the DMV because everything's going to run smoothly. Everything's going to be wonderful. There's a cartoon that, uh, a cartoon movie that Callie really likes where all the people working at the DMV, it's an animal kingdom cartoon or something, and all the people working at the DMV are sloths. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's like, Yeah, that's exactly what it is. The sloths are running the DMV. But no more government, bureaucracy, nightmares. When he runs the earth, everything's going to go smoothly. We get to see what that looks like. God's vindication in blessing the meek of the earth with the earth, just as he promises in the Beatitudes, the meek will inherit the earth indeed, shows the reward of righteousness. We see the demonstration of God, in his godness, in his power, in his might. We get to see it visibly here on earth. We get, to see the, we get to see the utter sinfulness of sin that God was right all along to say, don't sin. Don't sin, ever. Don't sin, stay away from it. Always, always stay away from sin. We're gonna see because with Satan incarcerated for a thousand years, people are still going to sin during that millennial kingdom, aren't they? They're still gonna sin. They're not gonna come and they're gonna have their reign withheld. And they're gonna say, okay, I'll go. They're gonna sin against him. So it doesn't require Satan to make us sin. Sin is badness through and through. We're gonna see the utter sinfulness of sin. We're gonna see it the way God sees it and say, you know what? I agree with you, God, full wholeheartedly. I hate sin just like you do. That's what we're gonna get to see. Man, all of this, all of this is going to happen during this millennial kingdom. We'll go to one more slide here, and we'll call it it a night. After the earth has been cleansed of all the unrepentant and the unbelieving, when all sin has been properly judged, that decreation that Peter describes in 2 Peter 3 is going to take place. The heavens are going to pass away with a roar. The elements are going to be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works are going to be burned up, incinerated than a new creation. Now, some people believe that this new creation, the new heavens, the new earth is kind of taking this current heavens and earth and kind of recreating it. I don't hold that view. I see that there are good arguments going both ways, but I see there's a brand new, all this is gonna be gone. I think, I think it's just gonna be disintegrated, that atoms are gonna just kind of come apart because God's gonna say, I'm, I'm done sustaining this fallen world. I'm gonna take it apart. I'm gonna recreate, I'm gonna give a new heavens and a new earth. And there's, there's some reasons I have for that. I mean, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, again, pre I do believe that that's a, about a 1,500 mile square city is a cube, 1,500 miles. I mean, think about that. That covers the entire Western half of the United States from, well, you know, I, don't, I don't know exactly where, but I mean, it's a huge, huge area with massive, everybody's gonna have a place there. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's talking about. This cubed city, 1,500 miles cubed means 1,500 miles up into the sky. I mean, how high is the space station floating around us? It's not 100 miles, 150 miles. I can't remember. 200 miles? 200 miles? So something's going to be changed on this earth. Something's going to be different. I'm really looking forward to what that's going to look like. New heavens and the new earth, recreation. And then we enter into the eternal state. New heavens, new earth, God creates them for a different purpose. Now he created this world for this purpose. What's the purpose in this world? Redemptive decree. The decree of God to redeem, that's playing out on this stage. And this is the perfect stage to do it. This heavens and this earth. What's the next one? What's that one, the eternal state? What's that gonna look like? What's that gonna be, what's that gonna consist of? What are the purposes there? What are the plans he has? I know that they're consistent with the first creation, the first, because you look in Revelation 21 and 22, you can see a lot of similarities. Things that, you know, call to mind things from this earth. What's it gonna be like? What does he have in store for us there? I can't wait to find out. Can you? Well, you guys have been troopers. Let uh, Let me close this time in prayer and just thank the Lord for what we see here. Our Father, you are God most high. Lord Jesus, you are Lord truly. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is not just a title, that is a reality that we're going to see manifest here on this earth. We are so thankful that your word has given us this outline that we can follow and understand and something to look forward to. We pray, Father, that you would grant us the perspective to hold this in our mind at all times, that we'd be encouraged and provoked and strengthened and edified, that we'd be spurred on to love and good works, that we'd encourage one another with these words. As long as it's called today, we will give deliver encouragement to one another as saints. Help us to live lives of holiness that please you, that bring glory and honor to you, that proclaims this gospel, even though we know that people are gonna turn away from it, this is the time of salvation. Now is the time, today is the day for many people still to be saved. Your patience means salvation for your people. The fact that judgment hasn't come means there's one more day for us to preach the gospel. So let us take advantage of every opportunity you give us. Let us redeem the time because the days are evil. And let us go forth into this week with great, great joy and anticipation. We love you, Father, and thank you so much for loving us. We love you because you first loved us and you sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior and our Lord. We thank you in his name, amen.